How many of you have heard of the phrase, a, a hill to die on? I'm not going to die on that hill. You know, it's this idea that, um, that there are things, sometimes it's an actual physical hill, like in, like in warfare, there are, there are hills, strategic places that need to be conquered for the, you know, the, the uh, what would you call them, the offensive force is trying to take a place for strategic uh, benefit to take a high hill so that they will have the advantage in warfare. But we can also think of it as, um, as, as values that we have or convictions that we have. And we would say, this thing is so important to me that, that I, would, I would give my life uh, to protect that person or that value or that thing. And maybe, you know, we wouldn't go so far as to lose our lives, but we would maybe put our career on the line, or we would uh, put friendships on the line, or we would put ourselves at a disadvantage in some way. Because we care so much about this thing that we would say, I will make a sacrifice in order to protect or preserve this thing. It's a hill that I would die on. And sometimes we make things that maybe aren't necessarily worth a hill to die on, we will, we will uh, turn that into something that we would make a great sacrifice for. And so sometimes you hear stories about people who, you know, get in uh, physical altercations because of the sports teams that they follow, you know, and you think that person made their sports team this allegiance to that team such an important thing in their life that they were willing to go to jail <laughs> or hurt another person, you know, and they, they had a conviction or, or something that they wanted to stand up for. Well, we're going through this series in the book of Acts, and, and we're in chapter 15, and it's the very center of, of the book of Acts. You know, there's 28 chapters, so this is really the midpoint of the book of Acts, but it's also thematically the center or the core of Jesus' mission in the world. What we see in chapter 15 is the hill to die on for Christianity. This is the, the core conviction. This is the thing that we would say, above all else, we must protect and preserve what we see in Acts chapter 15. We could say it's the hinge that our faith turns on. And, and that hinge, we could sum it up in the question, how are we saved from our sin and made right before God? This is really the, the question of, of all religion, right? How, how are we redeemed or how are we made right before God? How do we do that? Every religion has an answer to that question. And the Christian faith has an answer to that question. It's our hill to die on. We say we are saved from our sin. We are made right before God because of grace. Grace is our hill to die on, the grace of God. Now, what is, what is grace? What is grace? We, we hear this word so much. We sang grace alone. Uh, the song this morning, it's probably in, in 
every gathering that we have, the word grace is spoken or sung in some way many, many times, hopefully. And that's the way that it should be. But sometimes we wrestle, you know, how do we define something that we are around so often or we talk about it so much? So what is grace? And, and rather than come up with my own definition, I'm just going to use someone else's because that's just the thing to do sometimes, you know? You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. So, so someone that I've learned a lot uh, about grace from is a, a, a Episcopal, an Episcopal priest named Justin Holcomb. Uh, he has a book called On the Grace of God. It's a little short book that I really love. And he says, grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely. Grace is the peace of God given to the restless, Grace is the unmerited favor of God. He also says that grace is the most important concept in the Bible. It's the most important concept in Christianity. It is the most important concept in the world. What is he saying? Grace is the hill for followers of Jesus to die on. Another uh, theologian, Paul Zoll, I love names that rhyme, just FYI, side note. (laughs) Paul Zoll, he says, grace is unconditional love toward a person who does not deserve it. Now, this is crucial for us to understand uh, in a world that is kind of obsessed with getting what we deserve. And, and there's, a, there's a word for it. It's, it does have some religious connotations. You've heard the word karma before. And, and sometimes we get this righteous, or it feels righteous, self-righteous. We see something happen to someone else, and we think, well, they deserve that because I know them. I know the things that they do and the things that they don't do. And really what has happened to them, they deserve that. And, and we kind of wrap it up in this nice word, karma. Now, here's something really important for you to understand. Grace is not karma. It's the opposite of karma. Uh, The the idea of karma, it has no place within the Christian faith. Grace is the opposite of karma. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is also not getting what you do deserve. So there's it's kind of a, a coin with, with two sides. Grace is getting what we, you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to get it. But it's also not getting what you do deserve. There are things that you do deserve, and because of grace, you do not receive them. Grace is ultimately not about us, but it is about God. Uh, this, this is so key for us to understand. We think of grace as kind of like this, it's like a substance. It's like a thing, you know, like uh, that you could, if you could sell it or, well, that would be weird if you could sell grace, but uh, if you could get it in a jar or something, you know, we'd be like, that's the most powerful, most valuable thing in the world. But, but grace isn't a substance. It's not a thing. It's, uh, it's really comes out of who God is. Grace is just really the the character and the nature of God. Grace, we could say, it's the expression of 
God's free and his extravagant favor and his care for us. Grace is the expression of God's favor for us. Another theologian, Michael Horton, he says, in grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. So grace is just what God does. It's the expression of who he is, particularly in Jesus Christ through his redemptive action, the things that he has done for us. And that's what we're talking about today, grace. We're talking about grace, God's grace. And, and here is what we will see in Acts chapter 15, that, that our salvation by grace alone is the hill that we should be willing to die on, the hill that we would give ourselves to protect. It is the, we, we could go back to that Justin Holcomb quote, grace is the most important concept in our faith and in the world. And so if you, if you have to pick between grace and anything else, pick grace. That's your hill to die on. That's our hill to die on. So we're gonna read Acts chapter 15. This is a, a long chunk uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 35, but, but this is, this is going to be so good for us. I'm so excited to learn about God's grace today. So Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, starts on page 923 in the Bibles in the back. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe? And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this... 
The words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of, Gentile, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, than you abstain, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also." This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, your word has just been declared, your living, breathing word. And I pray that even now, that it would cut down to the very core of us, of our hearts. And there are things in here that that we don't understand, things that are difficult for us to piece together. But we pray that, Holy Spirit, you will speak through your word today to transform us, to show us that we are made right before you through grace, through faith in you, Jesus, and in what you've done for us. And I know for, for every one of us there is a struggle that we are trying so hard to be good for you but that you would help us to, to cease our striving and rest in you, Jesus, in who you are and what you have done for us. Remind us of that good news today through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in this passage, we're talking about grace. So we're going to see a challenge to grace, the fight for grace, the triumph of grace, the mark of grace, and the unity of grace. So we'll start with the challenge 
to grace, the challenge to grace. So we, we saw this last week. We've got these two Christian leaders, Barnabas and Paul. They have just come back from this lengthy journey that they've been on. They've been going around to all these cities on the northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and they've been going to these cities, and they've been preaching about Jesus. They've been seeing people come to faith in Jesus, people who are Gentiles. They're not Jewish, and they are uh, seeing they're planting churches. They're raising up leaders in these cities, and, and then they, uh, we see at the end of chapter 14, they come back to the city of Antioch in Syria, the, the church that sent them out on this mission, and they, they give a report. This is what God has done. He has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and we're seeing people from all these different cultures and ethnicities coming to faith in Jesus. And everybody is excited. This is amazing. The, the mission that Jesus has called the church to be on, it's being fulfilled. They're obeying what Jesus told them. Take the good news of who I am, what I've done, take it into all the world, and that's happening. And so the church rejoices. They're excited. This is what we were made to do. It's happening. Thank you, Jesus. They've been through a lot of difficulty, a lot of danger. We, we talked about all the trials they went through, but, but here they are back in Antioch, and uh, there's relative safety, right? They're back with their home church. There's just kind of a sense of, okay, we're back here. We know these people. We know this place, and, and it, it turns out that they don't really get much of a break before another controversy finds them, and, and let's, just, let's just put it out there. <laughs> Following Jesus, there's going to be controversy, <laughs> It's going to happen. So, so if you want like a nice, respectable religion, not Christianity, sorry, there's going to be controversy, there's going to be difficulty, and you think things have settled down and then like, oh, here's another thing where we're at odds with, with some other ideology or some other uh, belief. So, so controversy happens again as Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. So Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, he says... Some, some people have come down from Judea, the region that's around Jerusalem, uh, which is, we could say that's the birthplace of Christianity, Jerusalem. They've come to Antioch, the city of Antioch, and they are teaching, they're teaching Christians, they're telling Christians there, uh, you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you need, if you're a man, you need to be circumcised, which is the mark of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, and you need to obey the law of God. So, so the law of God is given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. You can read Leviticus, you can read Deuteronomy, that, that talks about the law. These are the things that we need to do in order uh, to to say that we belong to God. He's, he's our God, we're his people, and this is how he told us to live. So, so these people come from Jerusalem, and they say, if you follow Jesus, you need to do these things as well. To be, to be a true member, a full member of the Christian community, you need to go all the way, and you need to, to become essentially Jewish, right? So they're saying, anyone who's not Jewish ethnically they need to become Jewish, Jewish essentially. That's what it takes 
to belong to God's family. That's what it's always taken to belong to God's family. So you need to, if you haven't yet, you need to complete your conversion and you need to become a full member of God's family. So, so if we look back on the, the message that Paul and Barnabas have been preaching as they have been going around, you look at the other gospel, the ways that the gospels preached earlier in the book of Acts, what are they saying? The gospel is we, we put our faith, our hope, our trust completely in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us. We, we would say the gospel tells us that God accepts us because of what Jesus has done for us, not because of what we have done for him. That's salvation. We've been rescued. We didn't go find anything. We have been rescued. We didn't swim to shore. We were pulled out of the water because we were drowning. That's salvation. And so these men come to Antioch and they say, yes, we agree with you. Yes, we are saved by faith in Jesus, but you must also do this. They say in verse 1, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. And it's this also, this unless, that is the challenge to grace. That is the, that is the, there's, there's two hills here, right? There's two convictions that are at odds with one another. And Paul and Barnabas, they understand that this challenge to the message of grace alone, it's not just a difference of theological opinions. This is not a place where we can say within Christianity we can agree to disagree on this issue. They know we will die on this hill. We will, we will stand against this challenge to grace. And they aggressively oppose this message that these men are spreading aggressively. It says it kind of nicely. There was no small amount of debate and dissension among them. But that's, this means there were some, some, some theological brawls going on. And so, so after this continues and, and they're not coming to any agreements on this, the church in Antioch says, you know what? We need to make an appeal basically to the church in Jerusalem. They're, they're sort of the mother church. That's the birthplace. That's where the apostles are. We need to make an appeal to them. We need to ask them for help to help us resolve this. And so it's as we go to Jerusalem that we see the challenge to grace kind of morph into an all-out fight for grace. And so after they travel the 250 miles from Antioch to Jerusalem, probably about 250, uh, or it's probably about a month that it takes them to get there. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, the others, they are welcomed warmly. Brothers, thank you so much for coming. We're so glad to have you here. Uh, they're, they're welcome there. They talk about what's happened. There's joy. Uh, but it's not long until the fight begins. In verse 5, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, speaking of those who are not Jewish, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them or to force them to keep the law of Moses. The elders, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now this 
we got to understand this is a monumental moment in the history of the church of Jesus. This is massive. And, and again, that's why I'm saying that, that this is the center or the core of the, the, the book of Acts, the history of the early church, because this is the hill to die on. This controversy is so significant that every major leader in the early church is present there to be here because it's that important. That means all missionary journeys are stopped. Everyone has come to this place. Everything's put on hold. All the momentum that we've seen in the church so far, it's just put on pause. People have traveled for hundreds of miles to be here for this. Why? Because the heart of Christianity is at stake. Does God love and accept us because of what Jesus has done? Or does he love and accept us because of what we have done? That's the question. That's the issue. And that is a hill to die on. Now, we, a lot of times we think, well, you know, theological arguments and debates, they're just petty, you know, it's, you know, it's nerds who are just getting together and talking about stuff that nobody else cares about. You know, I've, I've heard this over and over again from people, you know, you know, theological debates, they're just a roadblock to unity. They just prevent us. Why can't we just worship Jesus together? Why, you know, why do we have to fight? Why do we have to be so precise in our language and in our theology? Why do we have to look at these issues so closely? Why do people learn Greek and Hebrew? You know, this, those are, those aren't even, people don't even use those languages really anymore. And it's true. Followers of Jesus can be petty. You know, we've all heard stories about church splits that happen because we can't agree on the color of the carpet or should we have pews or chairs, right? I mean, that's real. That happens. Uh, you go do lawsuit, Google lawsuits and churches and you will just be sad uh, at, at how petty we can be as followers of Jesus. But, but those petty disagreements... And, and there, there, we could say there's, there's a spectrum of disagreements, right? There are issues that are significant that we can have debates about, but we can agree to disagree on those kinds of things. Think of issues like spiritual gifts, right? The church has a, a spectrum of what we believe on. How does the Holy Spirit uh, fill and empower believers of Jesus today? And, and you can have debates, and I've had those conversations, and they can be spirited. That's the right word for that, right? Uh, and and, and you, can, you can agree to disagree. You could say we, we, we can't belong maybe to the same local church family, but we can still be in fellowship with one another as Christians. But just because some things are petty and just because we can agree to disagree on some issues, it does not mean that we ignore or downplay or walk away from controversy on some issues because the heart of the gospel of Jesus is always under attack, always under attack. There is never a moment at which it is not under attack in your own heart and in the world around you. There are always going to be false gospels that tell us we need Jesus plus something else. 
and you have a thousand different, you know, the second part of that equation that are in your life. I need Jesus plus something else in order for God to love me, in order for him to accept me. And those false gospels need to be, must be shut down again and again and again because the fight for grace is always on. In Jude chapter 3, Jude, who is the brother of Jesus, he says, we are to contend, we are to fight for the faith that was given to us, that was delivered once for all to the saints. It's true that not every hill is worth dying on, even within Christianity, but the grace of God is a hill worth dying on, and it is a fight that we must be involved in. And it's here in this fight for grace that we get to see the triumph of grace unfold in, in, this, in this debate, in this discussion that's happening in Jerusalem. And after there's a long debate, it's probably over a period of, of several days or even weeks that this has been going on, the Apostle Peter. And it's really, this is Peter's kind of swan song in the book of Acts. It's his last significant moment in in the book of Acts, he stands up and he proclaims a victory for grace. He says, I've, I've been part of this. I've seen what's happened. I've, I've lived in this debate. I've, I've been on both sides of the issues. And, and you, you might not remember, but back in Acts chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, Peter was himself wrapped up in the same kind of issue. He had the same doubts about salvation salvation for the Gentiles because Peter was a good Jew. He was raised in the Jewish faith and he wanted to, to be righteous. He wanted to make sure everything was okay with God. And, and he, you know, if you read Acts chapter 10, Peter basically argues with God. I can't eat with Gentiles. I can't do that. Yes, I know they're Christians. Yes, I know they believe in, but, but they're breaking your law. They don't observe your law, and I do. I can't go eat with them. It'll make me unclean, Peter says. But, but what does God tell him? Peter, this is my way. This is my choice. Uh, I am the sovereign ruler of the universe and so I'm deciding how this goes. And, and perhaps you didn't know my eternal plan for salvation. Peter, don't argue with me anymore. I'm bringing the Gentiles into my family. The gospel of my son Jesus is for all the nations. And so Peter says, I've lived this story. I've had this debate with God Let's not forget, so, so I'm just going to go ahead and call it here. This is the victory, the triumph of grace. He says, if, if this is true, if, if the gospel of grace is true that, that Jesus gave to us, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you challenging what God has already established by placing a yoke or a burden on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. No one's been able to carry this burden before. Not even us. And we've been trying for hundreds of years. But we believe, he says in verse 11, that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. The triumph of grace is that Jesus has taken the burden of sin away from us. He's removed it from us, and we don't have to carry it any longer. When we try to carry the load of our own sin, and we have all tried, we cannot do it. Every time we crumble under the weight, only Jesus can take away the burden of our sin. And the gospel says, he has done it. It is finished. Rest in what he has accomplished for you. That's what Peter's saying here in verse 11. We are not saved through keeping God's law. We are saved by grace. Our salvation comes in trusting that Jesus has taken the burden of our sin and nothing else. There's no other way that we are saved. And that grace is the same for everyone, Jews and Gentiles. Now, this is a historical debate, right? This happened thousands of years ago. But this grace is for you. This grace that that Peter and Paul and Barnabas and everyone that we're seeing here, what they're talking about, what they're arguing about, this grace is for you today, right here, right now. This victory, this triumph of grace is for you, for your benefit. Every one of us here has tried and failed to carry the burden of our sin against God. We've all messed up. We've all tried to make ourselves good to do the right thing. We've tried to fix ourselves. We have tried to hide our mess. We've tried to prop up our brokenness and convince ourselves and other people that everything is fine, that we're doing good. If you don't remember anything else that I say today, remember this, that God knows exactly how messed up you are. And he loves you. And he likes you. He sent his son Jesus to save you. And that is grace. You and I didn't do anything to earn that love. But in Jesus, that is exactly what we receive. The triumph of grace does not stop with what Peter says. He, I mean, he could drop the mic and I think that would be fine. But Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they say, we have also lived in this story we have seen the triumph of grace at work in the Gentiles. They, they give their report on what's happened. They say, wherever we've gone, this has been at work. The grace of Jesus has been removing the burden of sin from people. The family of Jesus is growing, and it's by grace. It's not through people learning how to please God the right way. 
It's through people trusting in Jesus. And then James, who really is now the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he, he weighs in and he agrees with Peter. He agrees with Paul and Barnabas. He says, we've seen this happen. I've seen it happen through, he calls him Simeon. I don't know why he does this, but he uses another name for Peter. Two is not enough. Uh, so he says, we've seen this happen through Peter's work with the Gentiles, but it's more than just what we have seen. This isn't just, a, just an observable thing. God prophesied this. He talked about this again and again in the Old Testament. And, and James quotes from the prophet Amos in chapter 9. He says, the, the restoration of the house of Israel will include the Gentiles. It will include all the nations. He's saying that the fulfillment of God's plan is to see all the nations come into the family of Jesus. The family of Jesus is built on grace, not on ethnicity or religious observance. Uh, A theologian, John Polhill, he says, in the Gentiles, God was choosing a people for himself, a new, restored people of God, Jew and Gentile in Christ, the true Israel. So the leaders of the church have spoken, Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas, all the rest, and they all agree. They are united, they are unanimous in saying our salvation is through trusting in who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and nothing else. Grace has triumphed. Now from, from this triumph from this victory, we move on to the mark of grace. So if you think of circumcision, which don't do it for too long, but if you think of circumcision, it is a physical mark, right? It's a physical mark of of belonging to God's family. It's to signify that I have entered into covenant with Yahweh, with the one true God, So if that's true, what is the mark of grace that distinguishes us as belonging to Jesus' family? What what is it that distinguishes us as belonging to Jesus' family? And that's how the church in Jerusalem, how they sort of wrap up and conclude this issue. In verse 19, James says, My judgment, my decision is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So we're not going to put the law of God on them. They're not required to uphold the ceremonial law uh, that we've been following in the Old Testament. And if we're good Jews, they don't have to be circumcised. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. So you don't have to, we're not going to make following the Old Testament law a requirement for the Gentiles, but we are going to ask that for the sake of the Jewish Christians, that the Gentiles refrain from certain things. So James, he lists these four things, food offered to idols, strangled animals, blood, and sexual immorality. So we have to think of of the world around uh, Israel, that in every city, basically outside Israel, there were, there were all kinds of pagan worship that's taking place. Every city, every region has its own gods, its own idols, its own religious traditions, and 
And those forms of worship were offensive to Jews because they break the law that God had given to them in the Old Testament. So James says, the church says, in order to create harmony within the diverse family of God, the Gentiles who have put their faith in Jesus, they are asked to not participate in those things specifically any longer. So so this isn't a requirement for salvation. This isn't a requirement to belong to Jesus' family. Salvation's by grace, but because they have been saved by grace, their lives, our lives, are to be marked with grace. And one of those marks is to be sensitive to others, to the things that make it difficult for other people to walk in the grace of God. Now, we, we could say this, in the grace of Jesus, we are free, we are set free from trying to earn God's love and his approval. Uh, Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that we have been set free. We've been set free in order to live a free life in Jesus. But in our freedom, we are called to love others. We are commanded to love others. So we can say we are not required to do to do certain things to be saved or approved by God, but we are required to do things by God as we follow him, as we are saved. The mark of grace is that we would say we are willing, I am willing to limit my freedom for the sake of others, other believers. Now, we are not, you know, you and I, we're not too worried about dietary restrictions um, except for Micah because he's paleo. No. <laughs> when, we, when our gospel community gets together, we think of those who are, you know, can't have gluten or dairy or they're on a, you know, we try to be accommodating, right? So we don't usually worry too much about, you know, food that has been sacrificed to idols. We have our own dietary restrictions, um, you know, strangled animals, not really concerning. Who strangles an animal? That's super messed up. Um, but the reason, the reason uh, that they did that was because the blood would not be drained out completely from the animal. And so uh, blood was forbidden for uh, the, the people of God. They couldn't touch it. They couldn't be part of it because it had to do with the life of the animal. So, so that's why the strangled animal thing is in there, in case you're wondering. But, but think of other areas um, we could say... Uh, that have to do with our freedom in Christ. So, so, so here's an example that's, that's really relevant, I think. Uh, I believe that we are free in Christ to enjoy alcohol as Christians in moderation. That's the commandment that's given to us, in moderation. So we could say, in Christ, I have that freedom. Okay, it, it exists. But we also have Christian brothers and sisters who are in recovery and in love for their sake, we would say, I will limit my freedom that, that Jesus has won for me, but he's also won for me the freedom to make a sacrifice for someone else on their behalf. That's a mark of grace. It means I no longer think only of myself, but I'm free to think of others and to make meaningful sacrifices on their behalf, not just for me. Another mark of grace is that we are set apart. We are distinct, right? That was 
That was part of the purpose of circumcision was to set apart the people of God. They belong to God. And, and, and we, in the same way, we belong to Jesus. And so each of the four things that James lists there, they are to distinguish the Christian community from the community that, that they live in the midst of, right? In those cities and in those places, and particularly in the area of sexuality. So... Because we, you and I, have been saved by grace, we are set free to live distinct, set-apart lives of sexual purity. So, so we would say the way that freedom in Jesus is expressed is not to do whatever we desire sexually, but to live in a way that honors God's design for human sexuality. So we would say that is as expressed in Scripture that the enjoyment of sexual intimacy is within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And so we are free to enjoy that. And we are also free to not be enslaved to our sexual desires, whatever else they may be. Now, you can read Paul's letters. All of Paul's letters deal with this in reference to each community, right? They all lived in different cultures. And, and a big part of the pagan worship in these other cities had to do with ritual uh, prostitution. So part of worshiping those other gods or those idols was to go have sex with prostitutes in their temples. And so so. So Paul, and here James is doing the same thing, we are marked by freedom. We're set apart to live sexually pure lives that are distinct from the culture around us. So you can read uh, 1 Corinthians is probably the best example that goes into the most detail. Here's how we live as Jesus people distinctly as it relates to our sexuality. And, And I'll also just make a plug here I've already sent this to a few of you guys, but um, there's a, a church up in Portland called Bridgetown Church that has just recently done a series called God and Sexuality that deals with uh, a lot of these issues in more detailed ways, and I recommend it. I wouldn't say I like 100% endorse everything that is said, uh, but I really do think they did a great job on that series. So, so search Bridgetown Church, God and Sexuality. Uh, and so the, the point being that our lives... Every part of our lives, they are marked by grace. Now, finally, we see the unity of grace. Paul and Barnabas, they go back to the city of Antioch. They bring some people, some leaders from the church in Jerusalem, sort of as a sign that we're united in this. We didn't just go have a fight and we're going to come back to Antioch and start our own branch here. We're coming with people from the church in Jerusalem to say together, Here's what happened. Grace won. Grace triumphed. And the church there in Antioch is united with the church in Jerusalem in grace. We're saved, all of us, Jews and Gentiles, by faith in the grace of Jesus. It says in verse 30, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. They read the letter out loud. And when it was read, the whole church, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There is unity and there is joy. 
as the church of Jesus is drawn together by his grace. Grace is always going to be challenged. There's always going to be a fight for grace. The temptation to add things to what Jesus has done will never stop for you or I. We will feel like we need to add something, we need to do something, we need to contribute something, right? Nobody comes to the party with empty-handed. But Jesus, again and again, declares the triumph of grace. What he's done through his life, death, and resurrection is enough. We don't have to bring anything to the party We don't need anything else. All we need to do is place our trust in what he has done for us. And in this freedom and in this victory, our lives become marked by grace, love, sacrifice, care for others, generosity, hospitality, forgiveness, patience, purity. And together we find unity in the grace of Jesus. And when you know that you bring nothing to the table but Jesus, you find out that you're no better and you're no worse than anyone else who is around the table because they also brought nothing but their faith in Jesus. And as you look around the room, everyone here needs Jesus just as much as you do. And everyone here has nothing more to give to Jesus than you do. Our resumes are the same. We are all broken. We are all needy. We are all messed up people who have been loved by God. He is making us new in Jesus. And that is a hill worth dying on.